Hi, I'm Bill Dotson, owner here at HR's Colonial Distillery of Williamsburg, Virginia. Welcome. Tonight we're having a panel discussion on the origins of distilled spirits in America. The specific spirit that we'll be talking about tonight is our new release, Jamestown 1608. It's a reproduction of what might be known as the first distilled spirits or aquavit that was brought here to America. You now know it as single malt. So welcome the panelists tonight and have a good time. I'm Dave Gibbons, and I'm the director of archaeology at the Jamestown Rediscovery uh, Foundation on Jamestown Island. And um, we have been very interested in brewing and 17th century brewing um, and uh, chemistry. I'm Bill Dotson. I'm owner here at HR's Colonial Distillery. Our reason for being is to recreate America's first distilled spirits. I'm Steve Bayshore and I'm uh, in charge of Mount Horowitz <laughs> Distillery in Grismill. And I'm the head distiller. And I'm Bly Straub. Um, I'm senior curator at the Jamestown Settlement Museum of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. But for 21 years, I was senior curator for the archaeological project. My um, focus is really on the material culture, so that's really what I um, focus in. Thank you all so much for sharing. Just to give you all an idea, I'm going to read a little bit, a little blurb about our Jamestown 1608 and where it came from. On August 29th, 2020, HR's Colonial Distillery released Jamestown 1608, the first edition of its period spirits line and recreation of the first spirit brought to America. This spirit is a grain-based single malt whiskey and is the pride and joy of HR's and their partner Jamestown Rediscovery. 1608 was handcrafted using applied archaeology and colonial period ingredients. The 1608 project took off after the team at Jamestown Rediscovery unearthed the first water to be found at the James Fort Well since the time of Jamestown settlers, along with the remnants of glass stills used to distill spirits. This discovery led to a remarkable opportunity, the chance to recreate America's original spirit. Several broken replica stills later, the Shires team attempted to create the old way of distillation. Water, grains, methods, and packaging all played a key role in the production of this colonial spirit. Now for our jumping into our questions portion, um, I wanted to start off with asking Bill if you would give us a little idea of what Shires does and our mission here in Williamsburg. Our mission here is to recreate America's first distilled spirits. Uh, rum, gin, bourbon, and single malt. Uh, it was Back then it was known as Aquavit. And this is our first release of that attempt at, at doing that. We call it Jamestown 1608. We're gonna be discussing how the piece, pieces and parts that all went into that uh, with our panel tonight. Um, the effort first started out with uh, my father-in-law working up at Stratford Hall with Mr. Bayshore here, and uh, we were looking for some opportunities for business and ran into Mr. Bayshore and found out that he was distilling over at Mount Vernon and ran up there and got a peek at what he was doing. Later on, we ran into uh, David here, who was the archaeologist down at Jamestown, but he was more interested in recreating 
the beers of the time that the colonists had and was trying to recover the yeast. We saw an article on it and called him up and said, hey, what are you guys doing? Because in order to make distilled spirits, we have to make beer. And if we could recreate the first beers, we could recreate uh, the spirits of the time. We also wanted to know, well, how they drink it, how they package it. Do they drink it out of the barrel? They drink it out of a bottle? We didn't even know what they did because we couldn't find a history on uh, glasses. And we found out that the leading expert of transportation and bottling and everything else that goes along with handling that materials was uh, Ms. Straub here. Did I say that right, Straub? Thank you. Uh, Bly Straub. <laughs> so we decided we'd start into this project of recreating the first spirits that that uh, then led up to the project that Mr. Bayshore is working on here, recreating the first <coughs> large commercial, uh, did I say that right, large commercial distillation in America? Well, I think Washington was not among the first. There were many other large distilleries in early America, but he probably had one of the largest in the late 1790s. Mm -hmm. So in 1799, they produced 11,000 gallons of rye whiskey on that site. So puts him in the top probably five in the nation. So not not the earliest uh, guy in the business, but one of the biggest. Hmm. How much of that was for local consumption. About 99% of it. 1% <laughs> right. uh, went to the mansion. Just about, you know, there's when the, at the time of his death. Uh, rations of rum and whiskey. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then most went to Alexandria, which was a major port and a lot of taverns. You know, he was yeah. basically a wholesaler. And so there were a few customers that one, George Gilpin, uh, in 1799, purchased over 4,000 gallons of whiskey wholesale. Wow. <laughs> so all that went into that market town of Alexandria. 7,000 gallons. And uh, some peach and apple and persimmon brandy as well. People drink a lot. Yeah. yeah. They still do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll drink to that. I think the per, per capita consumption, though, back then was higher, wasn't it? It was. Like it up, was. Over yeah. Four times today, I think, for men. Yeah. But as we'll, we'll probably talk about... Yeah, well, yeah, like, you know, the English history with that, too, uh, with gin. So uh, waterborne disease was an issue, and mm -hmm. people were concerned about good water. You might know in America where good water was near where you lived, but any traveling, anything like that, you stayed away from it. And the traditions really coming from Europe weren't to drink a lot of water. It's actually stated in the historical record that one of the worst things the colonists faced when they came here was that they'd have to drink the water. They were shocked they'd have to drink water. Because they ran out of their spirits. spirits. Libations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of the time. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, Steve, do you have any more that you want to tell us about what's going on up at Mount Vernon? The project there really started in the late 1990s with archaeology because Washington's distillery had burned down in 1814, you know, some 15 years after his death. And so uh, Mount Vernon took over the state park with the restored gristmill there and did archaeology and realized there was enough here to rebuild it. So it was rebuilt between 2004 and 2007. Our initial goal was to be an educational institution that we are. We never thought we'd make a lot of whiskey. And then in 2009, we made a batch which was sold in 2010. It was unaged rye. You know, they didn't barrel age that. And when it sold out in three hours, our executive director, Jim Reese, said, you need to figure out how to make more whiskey. So it's built year after year like that, and we make about 1,400 proof gallons a year in two or three runs that are pretty small uh, by, by craft distilling standards. But the nice thing is over time, the whiskey's gotten better and better. And so we, we do barrel age, so it's not all unaged rye, because we're, we're selling into a modern market. So we have a 
several products and brandies that, that move quite well now and we're able to keep it in stock more just because it's i think the early days there was a bit of a, a rush on it because it was been 200 years since any of that was around just like what you're doing you know so people are interested in the history they're interested in what was consumed then and if you can make it as authentically as possible, uh, they're interested in that. And uh, But again, I, I used to joke that we were just glad in the early days that distillate was flowing out of the still. And now we really care about what we're doing with fermentation and distillation and make it as good a spirits as we can. So it's come quite a long way since you were up there some years ago. So you all are actually making the original spirit that George Washington made, and you're making some other period spirits too. Is that correct? Yeah, we make the original mash bill, the rye whiskey, so it's about... 55 to 60% rye grain, around 30 to 35% corn, and the rest mm. is malt. Yeah. And then we have played around with single malt whiskey. We actually made rum three years ago for the first time, which came out really nice. Mm. And so every once in a while we get to do something special, which is fun from the production yeah. side of not just being stuck right on rye yeah. all the time. And uh, there's some plans to do a couple other things in the coming years. You know, we have a big anniversary. 2026, the 250th American Revolution. So we're hoping to release a couple special things in that year. So it's been uh, like in all of our jobs, I think we get to play with nice toys and uh, get it deeper into objects. And so it's, it's fun doing the work in a restored building like that. Well, Bill, you've touched on it a little bit, but can you tell me how the 1608 project got started? Um, and the components, what the components are to it? The ingredients that we thought were important that went into it was having some of the original water that the colonists had at the time. Uh, the, the material they would have brought over would not have probably been made here. It would have been made in Europe by one of the distillers uh, there. But all the ship's captains starting in the late 1500s, the first ships came over were, help me out here, First ships that came over were not the Nina, 15, the no, 1587. Uh, yeah, the 1580s Roanoke that flies actually on that project. Yeah, yeah. the first came over actually had ships uh, manifest that included aquavit. So we imported malt from England, uh, the oldest varieties that we could find to try and reproduce the malt. We had the water that uh, David had dug up from the 1608, uh, what we call the 1608 well. Mm -hmm. Um, at Jamestown. They had to cover it back up after they gave us the water. And uh, we went to reproduce a period bottle that would have been used, which took some uh, hard research on our, on our part. I, I was going through pictures and found this one picture of a guy drinking his medicine from a square bottle and, and go, well, there's got to be more than just this one picture, which we found uh, Bly to kind of go, well, how do they drink it at the time? Um, so it was the Still, that David had discovered the water from Jamestown Rediscovery, the bottle and the malt from England. So all those were the ingredients that went into it. The first pieces that we uh, uh, were able to start to put it together were pieces of a still. And I was actually found out that to create the spirit, we had to make beer first. So we saw a magazine article about research into the first beers made in America that were made at the Jamestown Colony Settlement and how they were trying to recreate the yeast that was used by taking samples from the bottoms of the wells that they had discovered. When I saw the article, I, I followed up with the magazine writer who helped me find David here, and that led to a discovery. They really did have stills back there. We're not sure that they used these stills to make liquor in, in the colonies that they had here. They were more used for research into... Metallurgy. Yeah. Metallurgy. Searching for 
now. Right. But the same stills were used back in England to actually make uh, distilled spirits. And it was spirits at this time weren't commercially made. They were just beginning to hit the commercial market. So one of the ways they were producing it commercially was to stack these glass stills on big pyramids to try and brew enough to make it at the time. Copper stills at the time were not considered uh, usable for drinkable um, alcohol uh, because people were being poisoned. And we aren't sure yet from the research whether it was poisoned from a lead in the uh, copper stills that they were afraid of or whether it was from the lack of knowledge of removing the heads uh, from the methanol and the acetone from it at the time. And we're still trying to research that and discover why they didn't use the copper stills until later on. Um, well, so actually, actually, early well, early on, distilling was such a small uh, <coughs> procedure, and it's usually done by women mm-hmm. in the household. And so there were small stills, and they would prepare like medicinal, what they considered medicinal substances, right? You know? And so it really wasn't until much later that men got involved and uh, became more of a scientific endeavor. Um, they got commercial and commercial, and they were supplying the army and the Revolutionary War that really bolstered, I think, the whole um, production of distilled spirits. So in the beginning, so what you've done is really a woman's task in the early 17th century. I'm comfortable with my feminine side <laughs> if, if it requires being involved with distilled spirits. In fact, you know, I'm when, very happy with once it. they started bringing in women, you know, in the 1620s, and they increased the um, whole health of the colony, and a lot of it was probably because the women could make the whiskey. They were making the whiskey, ah. yeah, ah. and they had the medicine to keep everybody doing well. <laughs> So what did you happen to find, because I, I don't know about this, about that water? What did, you obviously probably tested that. What, what did well, you say about the water? Yeah, I mean, Because there's lots of rumors about it being poisonous in the college, and I understand you, they're not yeah, true. Yeah, the, the, the problem with all of Jamestown and its history is it's like it's been generalized, and it's, it's far more detailed, right? All history is usually that way. And um, when we started looking at the well water, uh, the water table out there, it was with the College of William and Mary, Greg, Greg Hancock, and um, it was a, cu- a couple different reasons because the colonists were dying of all these things they described, and, and initially folks thought the Spanish were trying to poison the colonists, right? And it's like, you know, of course that wasn't, wasn't the case. And we're on a saltwater aquifer at Jamestown, like the Outer Banks, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what happens is the meteoric water falls, rainwater, and... Uh, then it's displaced by the, the salt water. And then when the colonists are punching into that, after a while, they start drinking salt water, which you know what happens. And so uh, the, the second component to that is when you read it, read the, uh, the descriptions, it's dysentery, that kind of, you know, they're having issues. And uh, what we found through the study is that, you know, uh, warm-blooded animals, uh, if they're defecating on the ground or the colonists are that gets into the water table immediately like after a rain um, it just gets right in E. coli a couple parts per billion is is not acceptable by any standard so that's what we were seeing and um, so that kind of gave us the idea Uh, a lot of people have joked that you know brewing with Jamestown water could could kill people but as we all know in the brewing process, that's not a problem. I mean, literally, they describe taking water out of the Thames when dead bodies would be floating by. Um, so that 
wouldn't really have been the issue. The issue then became what is what is the profile, right? Because the profile actually is, uh, I don't need to be telling you guys this, but it, it actually gives you the flavor. And uh, it turned out it was pretty good. Actually, a little bit of salt, like uh, the Tyne River in England, the Epsom salt in there. It's, it's actually perfect for, for what, we're, what we're thinking about. So um, we uh, did excavate John Smith's well, the well of 1689, and then a potential earlier well. And I had recovered water in there thinking that it would be pretty cool that you could drink history. And our endeavors with Hardywood Brewery in Richmond didn't... It, they wanted to brew thousands of gallons, and so that it was more for them and that in our project, it was more of the profile. Um, but when we met Bill, he was willing to use that water, and so with the 08 uh, liquor, you're really drinking back to 1608, technically. Taste of history. Yeah, a little taste of history. And you know, a lot of that that theory, modern day theory about um, arsenic in the well or whatever, actually comes from the fact that um, the forensic anthropologist Douglas Owsley, who was testing the skeletons that have been found, did find arsenic in the bone. But it's naturally occurring in our soils, in the soil of Jamestown. So it's not like it was put in the well. It's everybody has some. Yeah, everybody has some arsenic. Yes, it comes so, from decaying vegetative material. Yeah, it's so, our swamp. so it's that theory is, yeah. Did you come across any early yeast spray? We did. Um, there's there's quite a bit. The, the uh, problem is there was too much, actually, ancient yeast. And so um, when the colonists talk about uh, brewing and things like that, it, it appeared as though they would just croison, so they would just go from the barrel um, and straight into a new batch. Um, there was descriptions of them taking their arm and like swinging it around in the brew and then going to the next barrel, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, we found quite a bit and, and uh, propagated that up at the Medical College of Virginia, the bioengineering department. Um, but again, there were hundreds and hundreds of strains. Um, ultimately, um, we, we sequenced those. And interestingly, it was like the tree of life. And with, with uh, genomics, you can actually go back and it's like a clock. And it was pointing to Jamestown's time period. Yes. Really interesting. But um, we also were out there shaking trees and looking at natural yeast in the environment. What would have been there? Because that's part of that process. If you have an open bat and stuff's falling in. So uh, we ultimately settled on a persimmon yeast that was recovered from the site. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Beat, they were out there beating the trees with a stick and putting collectors on the ground. So yeah, we decided on that. That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 So I've always wondered how much they really understood and knew about yeast to get that question a lot. Because you know, they, like in the whole thing with malt, they don't know what an enzyme is back then. Right. They know they need to do these steps to get the outcome they mm -hmm. want. Yeah. So it's more about process and learning from whoever taught you before. So the yeast is a question we get quite often. And we know Washington bought brewer's yeast from a brewery in Alexandria and three different purchases those last two years. And so then they could just cultivate that. And I don't know if they were doing sweet mash or sour mash. It's long before those terms were applied, but they may have been just doing back set and going for fermenter to fermenter. Yeah. It's hard to know. That wasn't written down in that detail. It's amazing the science, because the, the period between we, when we produce this and what you're producing is about 200 years mm -hmm. in difference. And we look at 200 years of science as to what has come since then. 
uh, it's amazing what we understand about the process and how even now they produce artificial enzymes instead of using the natural malt That's for right. today's modern uh, beers and spirits. It's come a long way. And uh, early on, we used to put hops in the boiler water as a natural antibacterial. And then some of our batches, you get a little hoppiness come through the rye, which was not bad, but we've changed that up. You know, it's like oh, what are you using now? We just have a actually a filtration system on that water instead okay. of using the hops. But you know, it's like any process you get you were taught you know we're talking about beer making and yeah. you kinda of learn through your mistakes and make adjustments. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure everything came off right the first time. The first right. time. <laughs> yes, we did it the first time. No, we only broke two 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 thousand dollar glass stills to get started. Only two, that's fine. But the really special thing, like all the components that you guys have been talking about, the really special thing is that this Jamestown 6 Nui, like you really can get a taste of history because all the components coming together is like giving you a living, a living taste of history. That the colonists at the time would have thinned the aquavit down with the local water. And so that's why we kind of reproduced that process to say, let's give you a, a real taste of history with the actual water from the well in a method that they, we think they would have used at the time. Well, we've touched on almost all the components. We talked about the water, the still, the grain, the malt from England. Fly, could you tell us a little more about just the time period and the containers that they would have used and how how we came upon? Well, there's more I'd like to hear from Bly than just because oh, yeah. they had to transport beer, wine, and spirits at the time, but spirits yeah. were not the major drink of No, the how did they so do the, during that, that era? The the, what were the major drinks and how were they transporting them and can you give your input on that? Well, for transatlantic voyages, um, the most common thing were the, ca or the cases of square bottles, and they're called case bottles. They're glass, and that was what we tried to work out for the container. It was very difficult trying to meet modern day expectations of hygiene and you know, how you would seal it and so forth. But we found thousands of those at Jamestown, and a number of them were actually sealed with a lead collar with a, with a cap that would screw on them, screw threads. Those have not been found in England, only in the Netherlands. And uh, it's my belief, actually, that um, all the distilled early spirits are coming from Rotterdam, which is a big area of the distilleries are being shipped out, imported to England, and then shipped out with the um, colonists coming to Jamestown. Uh, so the case bottles were a big thing. They would hold the distilled spirits, the gin, whatever, uh, the aquavit that they call it. Um, then we also found, oh gosh, thousands of stoneware bottles that are made in Germany. Um, they have little faces on them and medallions. They're called Bartman jugs, and they most likely carried wine because um, in the 1650s, when the English finally get around to making a globular shaped glass container for alcohol, it's mimicking those Bartman jugs. Um, and those are wine bottles that they're making. Um, beer would be sent in barrels, probably, for the most part. And we know that it didn't always survive the voyage. It wasn't always in good shape when it got. People complained that they got sick for drinking bad beer. Um, so wine would preserve better than beer, and aquavit would be even better than that, you know, for, for a drink. So it would be... We know that um, the first guys 
went through their alcohol very quickly. We know that from the what we found archaeologically, all the all the Bartman jugs and the glass bottles, and they complained that they actually had to hide the sack, which is a fortified white wine from Spain or Canary Islands, that they had brought specially for their uh, communion service. They had to hide it because that was being consumed as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in the early early time period, it was. Um, quite miserable for the guys because they ran out of their alcohol very quickly and there wasn't a new shipment coming in. John Smith complains that every incoming ship is a floating tavern and the mariners on board can exact high prices um, for beer, you know, food, all kinds of stuff. And half of the stuff the mariners stole from the supplies on the ship before they land. They, they, they actually stole supplies from what was meant for the colonists um, and then sold it back at twice its value. Uh, it's called an East India increase. They're used to that with the East India Company. So um, it was quite miserable for our first colonists. So they got established, produced their own products. Right. Here, which took quite a few years. It did. What else was transported in glass back then? I'm just curious about that because in the more modern industry, in the 19th century, the first distillery to really bottle regularly was Old Forest. If you go through the period of the 1700s, those jugs, you see the whiskey jugs, and then just casks. Yeah, and then casks. So I don't know a lot about bottling of spirits at the you know, 17th century. See, England was not was not really making bottles until the mid 17th century. Um, glass bottles, that is. Um, so, yeah, it was all still spirits from the Netherlands, as far as I know. That was that was it. Um, there may have been some medicinal substances in glass vials, you know, with the rounded bottles and the long necks. There may have been some of those, but most of the medicinal substances were in earthenware containers, drug jars, drug jars. Our research, though, took us with the Dutch after that, because a lot of the Dutch came over to the uh, Caribbean islands and became some of the best distillers out there. We believe that that's where some of the, what we know as rum today came from. Although we know the Spanish were doing it in South America. Prior to that, we don't think it was the exact same methodology. The Spanish were using full cane sugar syrup. Yeah, that's the yes. same sugar cane. That's what you need, right? Yeah. But so. the Caribbean distillers were using the molasses that was left over there. And so the Dutch distillers that were making it in England uh, became some of the earliest distillers in the, uh, in the New World. It's kind of an interesting transition as they all exited, exited uh, Europe. When pre-revolution, there was a lot more rum consumed in these colonies yes. than whiskey. Whiskey was always there. But that's why you have all those rum distilleries on the East Coast, yep. from New York down to all the way down. Carolina. And I think about 145 of them have been done. Raw materials that and then revolution occurs, and for various reasons, we become more of a whiskey drinking nation. England decided to not let America have the molasses and the sugar made from the They were nice, very nice. So, whiskey yeah. became nice. American drink. It's very much a part of that time period, and then you can see it literally after the war that rum consumption went down and whiskey just continued to climb. I mean, the corn whiskey. 
Knocked yeah, the corn was right. In this region, I don't know how down here, maybe not, but rye was so prevalent in Maryland. Yes, northern part of northern Virginia, part. Pennsylvania, because yeah. it was a cheap cover crop. There was a lot of rye around, it, so they added available. So that that's all those great brands, you know, Pennsylvania and other places were only based on rye. It reminds me, you know, those um, stoneware jugs that you see. Um, well, you know the cartoon Snuffy Smith. <laughs> And he's got the three X's, you know, and the thought, uh, it has been suggested that that, you know, the three X's are the symbol of Amsterdam. You turn it this way. Oh, interesting. Yeah, isn't that an interesting thought? You know, as I've heard people say, oh, it means triple strength or whatever, but maybe it's a... It could be a connection. Connection, back to yeah, back to, yeah, right, right. That would be interesting to find out. I'm good I'm good with that too. Project? I think it's cool. Yeah. Well, now we've got them at Jamestown, but several stoneware jugs have eggs Oh, you have the old, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Well, you sort of touched on my next question I have to um, How does distillation fit into the pre revolutionary history? And we're kind of talking about the rum line and everything. Do you all have anything more to share on distillation and? Revolutionary time. Any good stories? We know there's one about uh, the Jamestown settlers. Yeah. Share with us. Yeah. Well, the, the surprising thing to me was they were using like sassafras root, like anything they can get their hands on. And um, when I was younger, I lived in Moscow for a little while, and they were making moonshine, essentially, um, and they were making out of everything. Like anything you can get your hands on. And um, when you read the documents, you get that sort of idea that they're trying anything. Some of the recent archaeological work that we've done, um, there's a woman, uh, uh, Joan Pearson, they're growing figs, and those that's exceptionally high in sugar, and I've always wondered Ah, yeah, I found for. a reference to around the same time period, 1620s, yeah. to a church using fig wine for their oh, nice. communion wine. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. That's what they, they're like, doing. They're, they they yeah. said something about her having 100 bushels yeah. in one one year. Yeah. It takes so much to make a, a fruit-based yeah. alcohol. It's mm. really not apples. Does it really? Oh, it's yeah. a, mm -hmm. unbelievable. But you think of the orchards that eventually got established in early America. And you know, a lot of those apples that people today think about the red delicious, those were cider apples. Yeah. Totally different. You know, they're not, you bit into them, they weren't good to eat, but they were all for cider. And then once there's pot stills, they're making lots of brandy, although, you know, not aging it much. That's the other thing about the American market. You know, Washington one time was going to send some Virginia uh, brandy to Lafayette, and he tell, in the letter is great, he says, uh, could not find any up to the quality of what you can get Aww. in France, but he sent him some Virginia hams from Martha Washington. <laughs> That's good. Because he could compete on that level, you know. But uh, yeah, the, the orchards that once existed are kind of mind-blowing when you think about uh, what was here. And, uh, but all of it can ferment, right? All of it. Well, now you got to do fig wine. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's your next project. <laughs> He's been trying to talk me into it already. Yeah. But there's a story about uh, John Smith and the um yeah the the uh he it's a very sort of untouchables kind of story um 
where he drags these Indians down into a cellar and they, they have a fire down in the ground and, and uh, suffocate themselves essentially. And he um, writes that he brings them back to life using aquavit, um, you know, the water of life, which is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. play on that. But uh, yeah, that's, there, there's little... For a short time, they pay honor to him as being a uh, semi-demigod. Well, that I don't know, but uh, he certainly thought he was. <laughs> he may have written that he was one, but <laughs> doesn't mean that's what they thought. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how little is mentioned about brewing and the equipment we have, obviously, may have been used for other things. And something mm-hmm. to point out that artifacts that we dig up have many lives. And one of the things that we did find in studies is that oftentimes brewing equipment would then be used for laundry. Mm-hmm. Like they take the kettle and just do the laundry the next day. So they use chamber pots yeah. to uh, cook meals in and so forth. Yeah, I don't want to read the tasting notes on no, this. No, no, no tasting Do you notes. remember the uh, chamber pot we dug up at Curl's Neck that had George III's face in the bottom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No. That was a that's nice hilarious. one. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. That's yeah. Oh, that's cute. Um, there's another story we had of the during the Revolutionary period of the Green Mountain Boys, where uh, it's rumored that the night before they went to take uh, fort at Ticonderoga, um, they would always go to the same tavern for their battles and get good and drunk. Well, the night before Ticonderoga, they ran out of the regular wine that they wine beer the alcohol that they would drink, and so they fortified it. With um, it was apple apple wine they were drinking apple cider that they would drink and get drunk on, and they fortified it with rum the night before, and they got so drunk that night they decided they were going to start over that night rather than the next morning, according to the orders that they had. And they, Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> they got there that night and banged on the door, and the commandant came 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 in his in his jammies to the door and said, "Take the fort; it's yours. I'm going back to bed." And so we and. Uh, if you're familiar with the Battle of Fort Ticonderoga, I think it was a pivotal battery battle in the uh, Revolution because they got the cannons that they could wheel down to defend the Boston Harbor. That's right. And which made a major difference in who was going to win the Revolution. And I think it's way underpublicized. So, in my opinion, rum is the reason that we have our independence. <laughs> that, and, that and Henry Knox being pretty steadfast and dragging those. Those guns, cannons through the mud. Sleds, yeah. the snow, get them down there. Pretty amazing story. Yes, it is. Trying to get them down the hill. Well, you know, in the French and Indian War, Washington wrote for supplies of alcohol on the frontier because uh-huh. that was just so important to an army. Yes. Uh, but he also wrote and requested a chaplain to come as well because he said the men on the frontier without that sort of, you know, have the ration but have some sort of balance to that because yeah. there was also in the towns before they went further west a lot of taverns. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to keep them in fighting shape because it wasn't just that, but also illness, as you all know. There's so many troops that were unable to fight. And if everybody's over consuming, that doesn't lead to too good of outcomes too on good the battlefield. Battle. Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't eliminate the British uh, rum ration really till the 70s, right? The 1970s? Yeah. Uh, Red Red Todd Day. Yeah. Is what it's called. Yeah. Went that far. So. Yeah. Sailors were quite disturbed by that, from what I understand. Long tradition. Yeah. You need your grog. There's another project. (laughs) We actually serve a version of grog here, Um, but the original version, I don't think anybody wants to drink. He's got the data on it, so you're good to go. Data on grog. You've got data on grog. I figured you did. I don't know. 
<laughs> the original grog, as we understand it, was simply uh, a dash or two of lime or lemon, whatever they had at the time, with some sugar and some water mixed in with it. A placebo effect. Uh, sort of, just yeah. enough to give them their vitamin C. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is what it was. Scurvy. So, yeah. yeah. Keep away from the scurvy. And that was the original grog. So some people here want to drink that grog. And I'm like, you won't enjoy that very much, you know, because it's bad water and bad rum and rotten lemons. And well, you got to be authentic sometime, right? Yeah, right? Mm. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Drinks of the eight. Well, as we wrap up our discussion, I just wanted to ask if you all had any other thoughts or things you wanted to talk about with Jamestown 1608, the special reason we're here before we open the floor up to some questions. I just think it's cool that, you know, we all study the past and we have different things we do in life, but it's like we live in today, right? So we study that that past and bring it into a project like this. It's pretty amazing Um, because I think a lot of academics wouldn't cross over to that that sort of project. But I, you know, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And um, I thought it was a pretty cool project. Well, I wish you'd give us more water. We only had enough water from him that we could sprinkle it and flavor uh, uh, quite a few bottles. So it's a very limited edition if you're interested. More thoughts you want to share? I just think it's a fascinating project to pull from from that far back in the past of this continent to find what you found in the research and then bring it full circle. You know, it's a lot of, you know, it's a very unique project, so it's, it's nice been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. We learn so much from reenactors and people who take on the, the garb of the past and sort of are actually like using the weapons and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, what you've done with the alcohol is really you know, informative. Good. It was interesting to break two stills, too. <laughs> well, that's where our artifacts come from. <laughs> that's right. That's why they're in the ground and not... Experimental archaeology. We recreated an early industrial accident. Yes, we did. You should have buried it in a we're, trash pit. Might have found out where OSHA came from. At least you weren't on fire. We did good. Yes, we did. Thank you. So our 1608 project, as we've, we've recapped here, was a combination of four items. Uh, water from the original 1608 well that the colonists would have used, um, malt from Europe as would have been used at the time period, glass stills as we were able to reproduce from the time period, uh, shards of which were inspired by the ones found at the James by the Jamestown rediscovery down in Jamestown. Um, and what am I missing here? The bottles, uh, recreating the, uh, a version of the case bottles that we actually found in a, in a picture of the period. Um, that we could. It's interesting because I want to touch on this, that base before we go. Um, the ceiling that they would have had at the time was, was rather interesting. I asked Bly what they would have sealed it with. She, said, she says, well, if they got liquor in it, they would have just stuck a stick in it and walked home with it. And I was like, no, no, you're kidding me. Um, but then she went and she said, no, 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 no. Um, that's what they did if they didn't have a top for it. If they had a top for it, it would have been one of the lead, like she said, the lead screw-ons. And I, I asked her, I was like, lead? Doesn't alcohol leach in lead leach into alcohol and we were both kind of mortified at the time by the thought of and corks could not be flushed to the top of the bottle because they didn't have the corkscrew invented yet right and you wouldn't be able to get it out (laughs) right yeah so the cork would only be up like you have it that's good yeah and wax wax seal and and this is cool what you did here with the little printed glasses Mm -hmm. um 
they're decorative, but also because you eat food with your hands and they're greasy, and that's to keep the glass from slipping out of your hands. Thanks for joining us tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have any questions, we're going to tackle some questions now from the audience and online. Do we have any questions? Any questions from the floor at the moment? Can you can you say it into yeah, this? Yeah, can you come up here? Can you just come up here and say it? <laughs> so as we know, uh, America has a lot different flora and fauna than Europe. So do we know much about how they introduce um, items like corn into uh, American whiskey? Because you know, corn and whiskey today are you know one and the same. So how do they add? the new flora, all the stuff that they found into the brewing process? Well, they, um, I don't know about whiskey particularly, but early on, um, they tried to make beer using what they say, the Indian corn, and it worked. I mean, because they had no success with the other method because they mash or the heat was not good or something, right? And so. Yes, yeah. the, the, the grains cook quite differently. Yep. So American corn, it was hard to work with because you had to heat it up above temperatures they were used to using for the malt enzymes to work and then bring it back down to actually get the sugars to go in, into solution. So there was some discovery that went, went on um, among the early colonists before they realized they had to cook the corn first before they added the normal European ingredients that they had in, that they added into it. But the hard part about doing some of our research is we went back to, to European and European beer making and if you ever go back into the research, don't be confused by the word corn. Corn in British English means grain. Corn in, um, to them, corn, what we call corn, is actually called maize. So if you were a proper American, you would call it maize or Indian corn. We would never refer to it as corn. Yeah, the, the uh, what Bly was referring to, they actually uh, made beer out of uh, Indian corn. And it it um, it worked, and they reported back that it was actually very efficient. And so we tried to make some beer out of Indian corn, and we malted it, and uh, it it oxidizes very quickly the sugars, and so it tastes like cardboard. And so if you've ever had beer um, that's got rice or, or some of the other uh, like like corn, and it has that slightly cardboard taste, that's why. So we, the, the students drank it, five gallons of it very quickly. Um, but yeah, yeah it's As students will different do. kind of different kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Um, so when you distill, I know that there's the first ten percent, last ten percent, uh, which is usually I think I think like methanol, right? Um, right, heads, hearts, and tails are the, are the proper names. Right. And I know now um, methanol has lots of applications for cleaning, setting things on fire, whatever whatever you want to do with it. Um, did they use the, the waste, or was it just waste? One of the projects that we're researching right now is when did they discover they had to separate the three parts out? At what time period did they? A lot of the discoveries that we've seen in the literature are that different people discovered different parts of distilling at different times. There was some uh, literature that goes all the way back to Egyptian times for them distilling. And the question is, did they know to separate it out uh, at the time? We still haven't found the exact time period where they were able to define heads, hearts, and tails um, out of it. Uh, um, 
We know that by the 1700s, uh, they had an idea, but we don't know when during the 1600s they were able to separate it out. There's where some of the confusion of it comes up as to where they contributing the poisoning to the lead in the copper or to the methanol acetone that comes out in the heads. To give you a definition of it, the, the heads are generally methanol and acetone. The hearts are the ethanol um, that, that we all know and love, and the tails are all the, the larger alcohols. There's nine major alcohols that come out when you uh, distill uh, in it. The wild thing about it is it's uh, turbulence in the still that gives you some of the flavors to it um, as to how much of those, each of those you want to mix into it. So there is uh, some other components in the heads. There's ethyl acetates and others that come out in the heads too, but it's predominantly methanol and acetone. But some of the flavors come out by keeping a little bit of that and keeping a little bit of the tails in there is where you get the best flavored whiskeys, not just taking the ethanol out. If you had, a, if you just kept the ethanol, you'd have, uh, what's the, what's it called? Um, Everclear, yes, thank you. Uh, you don't have Everclear. Well, how much good does Everclear do you? It, it's just vodka um, when you add water to it. There's no flavor to it. When we go to distill, there's some things about beer, um, esters and ast and um, esters and Chuck, help me out here. Esters and no uh, at the bakery. Esters and why am I? Aldehydes, aldehydes, esters and aldehydes that come out into it. Those esters and aldehydes will actually ruin a beer. This is my, my beer man right here. Makes, he uh, loves to make beer. Um, esters and aldehydes actually create sour beers, not the kind that you drink, but real <laughs> sour beers that actually destroy the beer. But when you distill them, those esters and aldehydes and some of those long alcohols that come out in, or shorter ones in the heads and tails actually combine um, uh, to make wonderful flavors in liquors that you that you don't get from the beers. What we do is take like the mash run. We'll take the heads from that day and the next day of mash, the heads will go in the still, and then we take another cut. So it's like we call it mash proof. So it's high proof, but then but you're going to make another cut that which you pull that out. Make sure you pull it out, mm -hmm. right? We like to do it more with the tails uh, rather than the heads. We have to keep the heads out. It's the different distilling distilling styles you see right here. Two of us sitting together doing colonial. Yeah. yeah, and then the tails is always a choice of how far down you want to go. Because like right. with brandies, there are things in the tails notes that you want. Yeah. But you're also running against the clock and you know, it's like garbage in, garbage out. If you're mm -hmm. still too low, what's going back in from the tails is going to affect the overall flavor of the batch. People don't realize how small it takes to ruin the yeah. whole batch. Yeah, so you know, we've taken over the years to cut those tails much higher than we used to in the early days just to preserve those hearts as best we can. And so the question comes up is, what do they know in the colonial times to cut? And when do they cut it? And it hasn't been uh, revealed. In, in... I might have a book in the PDF because I think we've come across an English text that may indicate they do a little more than give credit for about that. I think it's 1657. Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought it was the 1700s. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, Let's go into that. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating how much they did know. We don't give them enough credit oftentimes. Even about safety. One funny story in one of these texts is that this one large distillery, it says if there's an accident, you know, 
you take good care of the, the men that are running the stills, and that kind of refers to the other workers as somewhat expendable. <laughs> Guys that can run your Alembic, you take care of. So it's just, you know, you think about industrial safety in 60, 60s, different story. Uh, and it also says never leave your still. Yeah. And I used that one time a few batches ago because I had some staff, they're all great, but one or two would you know, just leave their still and walk outside to do something. So I just pulled the old book out. This is from Seventh Day. Yeah, you don't leave your still. If you have to go out, just tell somebody else to, you're headed out and, and stay on. Because we're wood fire. So you know you have to be there. Well, let me check the live stream and see if we have any questions from the live. Oh, yeah. Oh, we got another question. Go ahead. You're speaking to the mic. It's actually for David and Bly. Uh, let's see. My study's in the 1607 time frame. Uh, the people who came in on the uh, first uh, ships, there was one barber and there were two surgeons. Now, wouldn't uh, possibly any of those be actually distillers? I, you know, Bly mentioned it earlier about the, the uh, women brewing, and that's absolutely true, and processing food, animals. Um, so I think that I think largely today we're sort of out of touch with with producing food and distilling and things like that. So I think that the soldiers at James Fort probably could have pulled off something, some kind of brewing. We had an apothecary, um, yeah. too. And the apothecary would be more likely to be a person who'd be producing um, things from plant substances, you know, distilling. Um, we found pieces of fuming pots um, where they would use, they would throw in herbs and spices and burn them, and that was supposed to be cleansing the air, that kind of thing. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the concept of the colonists being somewhat, you know, running around in gunny sacks and just not... Yeah. Being dumb, stupid, and choosing fair. the wrong places has <laughs> been totally, it's been debunked over the past quarter century. And um, one of the, one of the things, especially with uh, with the, the you know recently, for example, we were looking at the uh, the renders for the sixteen seventeen church, the plaster renders, and the the gentleman in NIST commented that he hadn't seen that kind of plaster work since Roman times. And, uh, you know, these guys are coming straight out of guild systems in London. And they're being projected into the new world in these strange places. But, you know, they are at, at the top of their games. A lot of them are soldiers and surgeons, as you mentioned, and apothecaries. And so, um, yeah, I think, they, I think they could have pulled something off. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you all. It's really special to have this special group of people in one room together. So thank you for your time, and we appreciate all of your thoughts and sharing.